Thanks for coming today. Um, I, I was afraid maybe we'd have a little bit of a light group with the murder and mayhem session next door, so I appreciate you guys coming. Um, so I've been working on um, trying to research Park County, Montana veterans for um, several years now and trying to find and talk to the ones that are still with us. And then more recently, I um, have been spending some time at the archives in Yellowstone National Park to uh, learn more about the folks in the park and how the war affected them and what their participation in the war was. And uh, as far as Montana goes, um, you all are prob have probably heard of those Big Sky Honor flights that they, um, from time to time, will take veterans to see the World War II Memorial in Washington. And usually a politician will be on hand to speak. And um, I don't need to say which one this was necessarily, but he um, noted that 57,000 Montanans served in World War II, about 10% of the state's population, which is one of the highest rates in the country. And um, his remarks kind of go right in with what I'm saying. He noted that they served in every branch and every theater of the conflict. And um, I guess part of my thesis is that considering you know, what relatively small and remote parts of the world, Park County and Yellowstone National Park are, it's amazing the parts of the globe are people touched and what um, adventures and tragedies you know, befell them all over the globe. Um, these are just some examples of the um, involvements that people I'll be talking about uh, found themselves in. Um, we just lost Yogi Berra recently and he was famous for saying, it ain't over till it's over. And I think of war that way and also whatever the opposite of that would be, it, it begins before it starts, <laughs> if I can say that. We usually think of um, World War II for us starting with the Pearl Harbor and Hawaii attacks and in Europe they think of it as September 1st, 1939, but um, truly it begins um, in Asia with um, Japan invading China. Of Pearl Harbor, um, the Bataan Death March, kind of the aftermath of uh, the Japanese mayhem going on in the Pacific, um, North Africa, um, I should have Italy in there too, um, Normandy, the Battle of the Bulge, concentration camp liberation, uh, finishing up in the Pacific, and then staying for the occupation of Japan. Um, also, I, I have quite a few um, women in uh, my talk here because I realized the first time I touched on this subject I only had one woman in the whole talk and I was kind of ashamed of myself for doing such a poor job with that so I've kind of redoubled my efforts as they're they're definitely out there um, lots of women in the oh gosh I'm sorry what did I probably touched a button I'm not supposed oh there it is good um, I meant to do this the women in the different uh, women's versions of the services um, filling in on the home front on work normally done by men, nursing, um, and the other issues you can see there. Um, so, as I said, beginning before the beginning, um, a man from Montana who um, moved to Livingston, uh, he was the, one of 11 kids of first generation Norwegian immigrants, and he, um, being one of 11 kids, probably needed a job badly and went into the Marines and um, found himself there when we first set up an embassy in China and was there when hostilities started, um, Japanese versus Chinese. And um, his um, one of his daughters promises that she'll have an album that he kept um, available for me to see at some point. So 
Um, hopefully next time I speak on this, I'll know even more about him. He was a career military man. He also um, wound up being um, very instrumental in the creation of the Iwo Jima Monument in Washington, D.C. Um, four Montana men died when the Japanese attacked Oahu, and um, everyone always says Pearl Harbor, but truly, if you go there and visit, they attacked all over the island of Oahu, and Pearl Harbor is just the most famous. And Max Daniel here from Livingston, he, um, he actually had leave for the weekend of December 6th and 7th, and he elected to stay on board the ship and play cards. The story is that he was playing cards with the captain, and um, I happened to have a couple of friends and acquaintances who work at the Park Service site there at the USS Arizona, and um, including the historian, and I kind of passed this story by him, and he said it's very highly unlikely that the captain would play cards with an enlisted man, and he said that um, Pearl Harbor and the Arizona attack in particular, there's so much mythology about what people were doing in their last hours, in their last moments. So um, they're looking into that for me, so I might have more on him at some point too. Um, Livingston, uh, Park County had a man who um, was trapped when the Japanese um, invaded the Philippines, wound up on the Bataan Death March, which is a 60-some mile um, trek that was really pretty comparable to the death marches the Nazis put um, concentration camp prisoners through when the Allies were closing in on them. A lot of death along the way and disease and so forth. Um, he wound up at the Cabanatuan oh, Caban um, prison camp where he died and it took uh, years before of course everything was sorted out and his parents actually got notification that he indeed was dead. and. Um, I'm sure this was the case with everyone. Um, a lot of decorations on account of the suffering they went through, and also a personally signed letter from MacArthur um, expressing sadness over the loss of their child. Um, first woman here is um, definitely worth being first. This is Bertha Gonder, who's kind of an amazing person in Livingston history. She uh, came from coal country in Kentucky and lost her husband to black lung and had nine children to support. And in World War I, when um, extra people were needed to fill in jobs when um, men were going off to war, she became an engine wiper, which is just kind of what it sounds like for Northern Pacific. And she held the job for 38 years. So through World War II and a few years beyond that, uh, she was still doing her job there. Uh, we had a couple of um, army nurses who happened to be sisters from Park County. And this is a woman who was a, um, trained as a teacher, um, learned some business skills, and when she was widowed and the war came along, I think it was both an opportunity and maybe a chance for adventure for women that were free to go. So she uh, went into um, the Women's Army Corps and um, had a career during the war as a whack. Um, doing administrative work, but she did um, sustain an injury that actually resulted in her death about eight years after the war. I love this quote from um, MacArthur about the women in the army complaining less and working harder. <laughs> this is a woman who um, 
from Clyde Park, you know, very kind of sheltered upbringing, um, went into the Waves, which is the women's um, unit of the Navy, and wound up driving large trucks in New York City, which was a, a very amazing experience for her, being a farm girl from Clyde Park. Um, this woman, whose last name I, I cannot pronounce at all, was from Thermopolis, and she's the first um, Yellowstone person in my list. Um, she um, was college edu educated from Thermopolis, as you can see, and um, came to the park initially as a waitress and then went to work for the Park Service as a clerk and um, wound up going into um, the service as a SPAR, which is the Coast Guard um, branch for women, and wound up in an um, administrative job where she was considered essential to the war effort, which you usually think of more with people doing factory work and things like that. And she was one of the last people actually to come back to Yellowstone from the war because her work was considered so important. Um, so when the war gets underway, this is kind of the policy as expressed to um, a visitor who inquired of the superintendent who's here at the time. He was a superintendent during World War II, Edmund Rogers. Um, someone wrote asking for the park map and what could they see and do. And he wrote back, frankly, that, you know, we're not encouraging visitors. <laughs> and that if you, you know, had means to come and, um, you know, could pretty much fend for yourself for the most part, you were welcome to come, but, you know, don't expect too much when you got there. Um, this is the um, park service director at the time who I'll be mentioning again soon. Um, so why were things so dire in the park? Well, of course the war is going on. Um, eventually 16 million Americans will wind up in uniform over the course of the war. Um, visitation is uh, way down even though the year that the war started, 1941, was um, granted a record year. Um, Aubrey Haynes in his Yellowstone story says that a third of permanent Park Service people wind up um, serving the military in some fashion. Of course, there's a lot of rationing going on, things that particularly would affect a tourist um, coming to the park. Um, also, you couldn't um, travel for pleasure on trains during the war. So in that same letter, Edmund Rogers wrote to a visitor, he described the people that um, might be coming. He said such visitors as might be able to reach here in their own transportation. And um, Aubrey Haynes notes that it was mostly fishermen from the local area and people that had special dispensation to travel across the country because they were either moving or um, it was their business, like traveling salesmen, you might cut through the park. Um, some of the artifacts I'm showing are from the Yellowstone Gateway Museum in Livingston, some ration books that they have in their collection. So this is what you could find in the park during the war. Uh, most of the lodging closed. Um, there were some limited tourist cabins, um, very limited food, um, no organized trips, no medical services, no laundry that you could expect. Um, facilities were basically just left without routine maintenance. Um, construction projects stopped right where they were because you couldn't get construction materials. Uh, this was in Edmund Rogers' letter too. Um, no new park information. You had to use the 1942 um, park map and so forth. And you'll see the term um, operators. As I, I learned doing this project that concessioners were called operators at the time. It's 
been in more recent, you guys know more about that than me, but um, it's been in more recent years that we've come to use the term concessioners. So these are just some of the um, people that either were at the time or came to be notable in park history that went off to war. Um, the chief ranger went off. Um, there At the time there were about a half a dozen assistant chief rangers. There's only ever been one in my involvement with the park. Uh, some of them went off, park rangers, naturalists, clerks, and the um, buffalo keeper uh, went off too from the um, buffalo ranch. Um, Aubrey Haynes, of course, you can't really talk about any Yellowstone topic without um, mentioning him. Just checking my time. Um, he started out in the park as a patrolman. Um, you can see uh, his picture there. In the war, he was in the Army Corps of Engineers. And his wife, Wilma, who some of you probably um, have had a chance to meet, she actually figures into the World War II story in the park also because um, like the concessioners, the operators in the park, the park service was also having to share people and kind of distribute them amongst different parks. So she actually came from a park in the southwest to fill a need at Yellowstone and wound up um, meeting him. And um, there they are when he came back as historian emeritus in the 90s. There he is giving um, one of the last tour slash talks he gave around the park. Um, this is a lithograph that you could order and then fill in your you know honored people participating in the war and I um, I thought Lee might be here Lee Whittlesey um, I clipped this the bottom out and there's this section out in particular um, there's Huntley Child the scion of the Yellowstone Park Company and Lee yesterday was talking about the Hoppies so I stuck this in with the idea that um, Hugo Hoppies um, family, extended family, is in the war also. Um, here we are with the, um, in this case, uh, grandson and son of, um, you know, two of the largest um, operators or concessioners in the park. Um, Huntley Child Jr., who's the grandson of Harry Child, the first child in the park, so to speak. He winds up um, being the assistant shop manager at Rock Island Arsenal, which is still a going concern today and it um, this is a these are taken from a publication they did to illustrate what they did during the war and um, you could they did everything there basically from tanks down to making bullets so it sounds like he had a fairly responsible job um, John Q or Jock Nichols he um, went to officer training school in Miami which is probably a nice place to be sent in a war and then um, probably um, referring on his resume to his experience in the park, they wind up putting him in charge of operating officers' clubs stateside. So um, his father came to the park, uh, Billy Nichols, as a cavalryman and then um, went to work for the railroad. Um, he was a West Point graduate and a lot of them actually did that. They didn't have a required period of service like they do now. And then he wound up working for um, Harry Child. So um, I, I just sometimes wonder, you know, if it was with his father having been a cavalryman, if it was a little strange for him to be operating officers' clubs, but I guess it's an important job for R&R people. This fellow I had to find on the census. that I, there, The Park uh, Museum collection in the Heritage and Research Center has three um, large framed sets of 
people's, mostly people's official military portraits. And um, this is the Christmas edition of um, a newsletter that they would send out between four and six times a year during the war. Uh, just kind of newsy things, what's going on in the park, wh where the plowing has gotten to, you know, things that people that work in the park care about. <laughs> and um, so this fellow, um, single man, he had worked um, selling groceries in Mammoth before the war, um, according to the census, so um, probably was working for Mrs. Pryor's store, I imagine. And uh, he was one of several bachelors that wrote letters to the park superintendent or sort of dear everyone letters. And there's a file of these at the Heritage and Research Center in the um, archives um, just detailing what they're doing. And so he, um, he never comes back to Yellowstone. He goes into the um, Army Air Force and winds up making a career out of the Army. This is my favorite person I discovered during this whole um, project. <laughs> um, Floyd Whithoft, who was from Minnesota and had about a seventh grade education, according to the census records I could find on him. And he was the most prolific um, correspondent. And some of his letters are, are kind of, you know, you get to the end and he hasn't really said anything. And some of them are very newsy. And he shares, for example, that his unit has adopted a pet monkey. And I'm sorry to say, um, there are a few snapshots of him that didn't reproduce very well. And this is, this could be him, theoretically, but um, you know, we all get a lot of stuff off the internet now when we're giving talks. And believe it or not, I took this picture from the screen of my television. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was watching a documentary about um, the Tunisia campaign, and here's a guy with a monkey on his shoulder. <laughs> so, what are the chances? I don't know how many units had pet monkeys, but anyway. Um, and this is one of the um, letters that he wrote to the superintendent, and as I have up here, he um, had been a truck driver in the park and was made a truck driver in North Africa in Operation Torch, and he named his truck the Elster National Park. Um, he also reports on um, the conditions of local people. He says, um, the locals use ox and also have buggy. Um, he says, also the French girls, ah, ah, I think he meant ooh la la or something like that. Um, he says, on our day off, we drink a little vino, which is wine. We oui, we oui means yes, spelled W-E-W-E. -W -E. So they're, they're sort of sweet letters. <laughs> Um, from here on, uh, well, I, oh, I already have been doing this, I guess, but I tried to pick some people you might have actually heard of or heard of their families or heard of their businesses. So here's Harold Wilcoxon, who's still alive, and he had already um, begun participating in the family business when he was uh, called up and wound up in the Navy and wound up in the huge armada that uh, we used during the Normandy invasion. In Paradise Valley, uh, there used to be, well, there still is an Oxio Ranch, but it used to also be a guest ranch, and it's now the uh, Mountain Sky Guest Ranch. And this fellow was the oldest son and sort of heir apparent to running the Oxio Guest Ranch. And uh, instead, he winds up in the service, becomes a pilot, and uh, goes down um, over Italy in a kind of a mid-air stall training accident. And you can see him here working at the um, Oxyoke Dude Ranch. Um, he was already uh, married. He had married a um, 
um, Dudette, Dudine, <laughs> uh, someone that was visiting with her family. And um, he would write, um, and the letters would get shrunk up like they do into V-mail. And then, uh, sadly, this is the letter that um, his wife received, um, letting her know that he had died in this training accident. This fellow, um, I just called cold out of the phone book because I had seen an article about, oh, something happened with him. Oh, there it goes. Um, I'd seen an article about him in the paper that he was going to one of those honor flight things. And so I called him up and um, he, he thought I was from the, um, the VA and he was really brutal with me because he has an unresolved claim. And uh, when we got it all sorted out, it was okay. But um, so he was, in, um, he was in the Quartermaster Corps, which nobody really talks about. And I thought well, that's not gonna be a very interesting story, but I, um, so I asked him if he saw any combat and he just started laughing at me. And so it, it was, I learned a lot talking to him and then looking into it later. Um, you know, you think of people as storming a beach and maybe the people with the supplies are safely behind, but they're not. Um, this, these are all the quartermaster companies that were involved in the Normandy invasion. Uh, it was a very lethal business to be in. And um, when I gave just the Park County part of this talk a few months ago, there was an old fellow in the front row that told me that um, Mr. Counts, um, his unit came under attack from the Germans and he was lucky to be able to hide and was the only person in his unit that survived. And he, he hadn't even mentioned that to me. Uh, this fellow was in the European theater. He was bombardier in an um, aircraft with the um, Army Air Corps called the Bold Venture. Um, this is my late father-in-law, um, Jack Robb. He was in the 8th Air Force, and he had a, what I think is a really interesting job. He repaired cameras and set them into um, reconnaissance aircraft. And they would go and you know photograph things like the Normandy Beach before the assault was going to happen. And um, the Yellowstone Gateway Museum has his um, one of his jackets there. And um, he would complain a lot about you know how the war was just lost time for him. And um, I was always interested to hear more about his experiences than he wanted to tell me. And um, I asked him once, you know, what happened when you developed the film? And he said, well, they went right to Eisenhower's headquarters. And I said, that must have been kind of, you know, satisfying knowing you were doing such important work. And he's like, yeah, I never really thought about it. <laughs> um, he was in Paris when it was liberated. And he, um, it's very kind of him, he gave me his postcard collection he bought there. And then after he passed, um, I, I hadn't even known that he went to some of the same places in Europe that I've been with my mother. Um, we often toured together since she retired. Um, here he is. Those are the um, museums that are um, right near the, um, the um, Eiffel Tower. This is a um, castle in Germany that wound up behind Soviet lines. And so he would have been um, touring there in that interim period before the Americans had to clear out and the Russians came in. He also um, had these two pictures, and I, when I first saw them, I didn't know where they were or what was going on, and um, I found them on the German website for the Buchenwald concentration camp, and it turns out they were taken by professional photographers, and since he was in a camera unit, he probably had more access than most people to be able to get photos and get copies, so 
these are things that he collected, you know, as sort of testimony of what happened during the war, but I don't know for a fact that he saw the camp himself. Um, these are in his photo album, too, and um, there's always a lot of humor during wartime just to ease the stress. So this is a train that some GIs have marked up with um, looking for women and playing cards and so forth. This is a fellow that actually did participate in the liberation of a concentration camp, and I just learned about him recently. Um, after the war, he went to Stanford, and he became a very highly educated person, but um, in the war, he was a military policeman, and then his um, company wound the 71st. Um, when I was researching it online, I found out that they had published um, this booklet to document what they found at this camp, which you've probably never heard of because it's a sub-camp of the much more famous Mauthausen concentration camp. Oh, thank you. And um, it had something like 45 sub-camps. This one was a slave labor camp, and this is what they found when they got there. So I think this is you know kind of like Eisenhower had films made of the liberation of concentration camps so that I mean, people still do, but with the idea that people should know what happened and they shouldn't be able to deny that it happened. Okay, Warren McGee, a lot of you will have heard of his photo collections at the Montana Historical Society. He actually learned first to um, develop his photographic skills during the war. Um, Dr. Ito was um, a Japanese-American physician in Livingston who was in the famous um, 40, 442nd Regimental Combat Team. And before he went in, um, he and his wife, uh, Marion, uh, didn't know each other yet. They were both interned in different um, facilities, different internment camps in the United States. Here are all the different ones that we had. They were in two different camps. And they wind up meeting in Philadelphia. She's in the Nurse Cadet Corps, and after the war, uh, he goes to um, Temple University, which a lot of people in my family have gone to. Um, for his medical training. He was already a college graduate when he went into the war. Um, this fellow was the best friend of a man that is a couple slides from now. I'll, I'll be quick, I promise. Uh, he was another Japanese-American from Livingston, and there were two little shanty towns in Livingston that um, were called Jack Town when you look at old photos and maps of Livingston. So he lived in one of those, also wound up in the 442nd. I was amazed how many... Japanese Americans just from Livingston wound up in the, the famous Gopher Broke Regiment. Um, this is Harold Rutiski, who's very much alive still. Um, he landed on four of the islands in the Pacific in the island hopping campaign and was awarded both a bronze and a silver star. And this is the occasion of his silver star getting um, a handshake from Admiral Nimitz. Um, these are just some um, USO pictures. Um, Harold Rudisky got to see a Bob Hope show coming through. There he is, as he looked a couple of months ago. He's a very handsome guy in his uniform. Um, some of you that have been to Livingston and know the theater scene there know um, Gary Fish, who's in almost every play that's put on in Livingston. And this was his dad, who was in the Marines in the Pacific Theater. Um, this is pretty rare that someone has saved and can locate all these things. He was a musician, but wound up in um, some pretty um, terrifying campaigns, including the 
Shuri Castle battle. This is a reconstructed version today. Uh, this is him um, recuperating from very severe injuries. Um, I couldn't resist putting this in because there was a program in the country called Dogs for Defense. And in the beginning of the war, anybody with almost any kind of dog except like a little teacup dog could donate their dog to the war effort. And if your dog made it alive through the war, which many of them did, your dog would come back to you. And so I, I was looking and looking, and finally this uh, person appeared at a lecture that I was at also. And she, as a um, child, had offered her dog Spunky. And he wound up being a sentry um, stateside. And sadly, he died when he was in um, being transferred from one post to another from heat exhaustion. And then uh, this is um, Cuthbert, the National Park pup. And he, um, he didn't really have anything to do with why he was famous. This is just a model dog, but it was a radio program that the National Park Service made available um, sort of for a war time morale boosting thing. And Cuthbert would visit different parks. Like he went to Yellowstone and he meets a bear and talks to the bear. <laughs> Here are some of the um, ways that we uh, paid for the war. And um, Yellowstone um, won this banner, which is, I made it full size because it's, it's huge for uh, meeting their quota with one of the um, loan drives. Um, Louis Armentero was the best friend of the second Japanese American fellow. He was on um, Philip, uh, Philippines and actually saw some Japanese um, commit suicide in the face of the um, ethnic, um, the Aboriginal people there, the Moros, um, because they were so afraid. The Moros were kind of fighting everybody at different times, but apparently the Japanese were, you know, had a long history with them and were terrified, and he saw some people actually, um, you know, kill themselves with grenades when they felt the Moro were closing in on them. He also learned um, kind of what he became famous for um, during the occupation of Japan. He um, started announcing events, and he has the Guinness Book of World Records um, record for announcing, being the announcer at the same event for the longest of anybody, and it's the Livingston Roundup um, Rodeo. Um, I'm almost done here. Um, a, a lot of you probably saw the Monuments Men, and this is our local uh, story that relates to that. Um, Margaret Reeb, who hasn't been gone too long, uh, she was a WAC. Um, she served in Germany and was called the Special Services. Um, she had an opportunity to meet Eleanor Roosevelt. And uh, when she was in Nuremberg, a couple of GIs um, offered to sell her these two little paintings. And I guess she just assumed they were legitimately acquired, but I think nowadays with everything we know and now we would assume they were not legitimately acquired and you can see how tiny they are and this was just in the Livingston Enterprise and the New York Times a few months ago um, her uh, Margaret Reeves nephew who was her heir found these in a safe deposit box thought it was fishy um, gotten to, had seen the movie Monuments Men got in touch with the foundation and found out that the GIs or whoever they got them from had stolen them from Cronenberg um, Castle, which was her home. She was um, Queen Victoria's eldest daughter and married the um, Emperor of Prussia. Um, I always like to do this when I talk. This is what was happening 70 years ago today. Of course, we're past 
um, VJ Day, but you can see that um, they're talking about people coming home with their honorable discharges. Where will the GIs live? You know, housing became a problem right away. And this, my favorite part, two brothers um, accidentally met up with each other um, over in the um, Asian uh, theater. Thank you very much.